0: Well, good evening. hope that you're having a good week, and uh, if you you have stayed dry, then you didn't go outside at all this week. (laughs) But uh, let's go ahead, and uh, we'll bow together for a word of prayer, and then we will uh, hopefully get through this passage tonight. Um, we've We've dealt with a lot of introductory thoughts, and so tonight we're going to just deal with the text itself. So let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, as we dig into your word tonight, I pray that you will help us to look at this passage of scripture with a heart that uh, submits to your purposes. And I recognize that a text like this can be very painful for some people. Uh, It could sound impossible to some people. Uh, For others, it might be a crusading issue. And I pray that that wouldn't be the 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 response of any of us, but that we would recognize that In your grace, you established a standard for marriage, and I pray that we would uplift that, and I pray that you would strengthen our marriages as we dig into some practical things related to this topic. I pray that the things that are said would be very helpful to each person here tonight, and uh, especially our young people. We ask all this in Christ's name, amen. Okay, Matthew chapter 5, and we're reading verses 27 through 32 together tonight. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. And here's what the Word of God says. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not thy whole body that should be cast into hell. It hath been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife saving for the cause of fornication committeth or causeth her to commit adultery and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery now we have looked at this passage for several weeks and the reason we've spent so much time dealing with it is i wanted us to define our terms i wanted us to establish a biblical understanding of what god teaches about marriage and it's important that we recognize that when Jesus is asked the question about marriage and divorce by the Pharisees of his day, rather than getting into all this discussion about, well, in this situation you could do this, in this situation you could do this, and th- he didn't do that. He basically just says this, haven't you read the scriptures? Don't you know what the Bible says in, in the law of Moses? Don't you understand what the purpose of marriage is? Why did he do that? Well, the reason that he took it that way is that if we understand what marriage is, there are certain questions that we really don't need to ask. And there are certain questions that when we ask them, we should anticipate a certain kind of answer based on our understanding of what marriage is. And so we've spent a lot of time to try to develop a biblical understanding of marriage. I want to remind you again of the summary statement, and then let's just work our way through this text of Scripture and see exactly what it says. The following portion of the Sermon on the Mount emphasizes the importance of marriage. And the danger of disregarding God's design for marriage. Now, the very first thing that he's gonna state is that God condemns adultery. Now, obviously, nobody should be surprised with that statement, but notice what he says in verse 27. He says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, why does he ask the question, have you heard? or He makes the statement, you have heard these things. Why does he say that? Well, it's because the Old Testament talks about this. And not only does the Old Testament talk about this, but the rabbis, as they were in the synagogues, would have read the Scriptures and then would have expounded the Scriptures. That was the job of those who were Levites. They were supposed to not just read the Word of God, they were supposed to teach the Word of God. And so they heard a lot of instruction about this issue. And the Ten Commandments, it says, Exodus 20, verse 14. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Simple. Then when we go to Leviticus chapter 20, we see that God actually classifies adultery with certain sins that were called capital crimes. Now, I'm not suggesting by stating that this was a capital crime in the Old Testament that, the, that our country should make this a capital offense. I would have to, have to honestly say, though, if it was it would not be a violation of scripture at all. It would be consistent with the way that God wanted the nation to be governed. It was a very serious issue for someone to be unfaithful to the covenant of marriage. And there are a lot of reasons for that. One of the reasons is because really the building block of a society and its strength is the strength of the family. And if we think about the fact that the, the Jews in the Old Testament were given portions of land that was supposed to be the place that they were to plant themselves for many many generations if a person had a child who was out of wedlock you know what that does that completely messes up their claim to that land or if a person commits adultery they have a child with someone else who's not their spouse it completely messes up their claim to that piece of property that's just one of the practical reasons but it's also because God says marriage is sacred Marriage is serious. It's something that we should uphold in the same way that God does. And so he says in verse, chapter 20, verse 10: the man that committeth adultery with his with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Again, we do see in the New Testament that there was a woman who was taken in adultery. She was thrown before Jesus. And Jesus did not demand that she be put to death. He simply said, well, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. They all walked away. Because obviously, there's a lot more to the story than what we see there. But this is why they heard about this. This was something that was discussed a lot. And then the third thing that I'll mention. Is that the book of Proverbs warns us about this issue of adultery. In Proverbs chapter 6 verse thirty two and thirty three it says Whoso whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. A wound and dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. So I think that this explains why they heard discussion about this issue. It's because it's one of the most stringent of all the laws that we read in the Old Testament. It's a very, very serious matter. But I want to go a little bit further than this. What they heard when they read the law was indeed God's word concerning the issue. But what they heard being taught by the rabbis was not God's word. And not only was it not God's word, it was actually very inconsistent With a proper interpretation and understanding of these laws. What they heard when the rabbis expounded their interpretation was the rabbi's opinion. Not God's word on the issue. Where they stopped and what they excused was their opinion, not God's word on the issue. We believe in the sufficiency of scripture. So what we're saying is that we should rightly divide the word of God. Where God says something, we just state what it says. We don't go further on this direction. We don't cut it short on this side. We simply state what he says. And the rabbis weren't doing that. They were in certain places making excuses, even to the point the, of what was going on, where they would say, if, if your wife burned your toast, and you had a, you know, she had a bad day, and you decide you don't want to be married to her anymore, you just put her away. I mean, what a flippant and arrogant attitude. This was the way the rabbis thought. Christ was directly confronting this flippancy of the rabbi's attitude towards marriage and sexual sin in the heart. And this is a very important thing for us to notice. He is simply reaffirming God's word on this delicate issue. So what Jesus is saying is not new. What Jesus is saying is not different. What Jesus is saying is consistent with what the Bible teaches. Truth number two, God condemns the root cause of marital unfaithfulness in the same way he condemns adultery. Now, I do want to preface this after I read it. In verse 28 he says, Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now, this morning we were having our devotions as a family and my daughter raised her hand We weren't talking about this passage of scripture, okay? But she asked the question. She's like, Daddy, why does it always talk about men but not women? I said, well, actually the Bible does have a lot to say about women, okay? We were in Proverbs. um, And I had to explain to her that in a verse that would be similar to this one, not this one here, that he's also talking about a woman lusting in her heart toward a man. A great example of this would have been Potiphar, (coughs) Potiphar's wife. I mean, Potiphar's wife, and some people say, well, you know, men are they're attracted by sight, women are not. That's a lie. That's not true. I mean, do women in here want to marry ugly men? I, I don't know. If you do, fine. But, but what I'm trying to say is that, <laughs> well, once it's done, it's done, right? <laughs> but it states in the way that the text reads, it talks about Joseph being an attractive man, and it, it talks about him being attractive in form. Okay, in other words, he was uh, a tough-looking guy. All right, he was he was muscular, he was built. She was attracted to him because of the way he looked. All right, so this could be going either direction—not just a man lusting in his heart, but also a woman could be lusting in her heart as well. And we notice that Christ is consistently in the Sermon on the Mount. Focusing on the heart that drives action. So he talks about being poor in spirit. That's a heart issue, okay? He talks about being meek. That's a heart issue. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness. A heart issue. Being merciful. Well, where does mercy start? Well, it starts in the heart. He talks about being pure in heart. Having anger against your brother. Looking on a woman with lust. Why does he do this? It's because the heart matters, okay? It's not just the action that matters. It's the heart that drives the action. And some people say, well, you know, I never crossed this line right here, so I'm okay. And the answer is, that's not true. Okay? It is true that the consequence of lust in your heart and the consequence of actually acting on that physically will be very different. (laughs) Unquestionably, that's the case. But his point is... They're both serious. they're both a big deal to God. And you could put it this way: the pattern that leads to an affair or the pattern that leads to adultery, it is established in the heart before it is acted on with the body. The heart has violated the marriage covenant, even though someone has not yet physically acted on their sinful desires. So we see the second point: He condemns adultery. And number two, he condemns the root cause in the same way that he condemns the actual act. Again, we're not saying that the consequence is equivalent, the exact same. But God's looking at the heart of what's going on. The third thing. And this is where the the, the passage starts getting... If it's not going to get interesting, it's going to start getting interesting here. God calls us to take sexual sin seriously. Now look down in your Bibles and notice what it says in verses 29 and 30. He says, If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out. Now I would have to say that all of our people here tonight would be blind if we were to actually literally do this. And I would also have to say that you've already sinned when you decide to go and pluck out your eye. Jesus is speaking in the same way that he would when he's speaking in parables. Parables. He's using an illustration that's trying to illustrate some very important points. And we're going to talk about what he means by that. But notice carefully what he says. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out, cast it from thee. By the way, uh, a lot of us are probably right eye dominant, not left eye dominant. He says, it's profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not thy whole body should be cast into hell. If thy right hand offends thee, cut it off. Probably the vast majority of us are right-handed. One of my kids, it's looking like he's going to be a lefty. So we're playing baseball. And he picks the ball up with his left hand. And he throws it. I'm like, ooh, just let him do it. I don't care. Make be a lefty for all I care. But when he talks about your right hand, he's talking about the hand that would have been dominant in strength, dominant in skill. So he's making a point that this is a really serious issue. And he says, it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Now it's important to notice this. There's nowhere else in the epistles or in the rest of the Bible where we see this practice of people cutting off hands and plucking out eyes. And so what that would lead me to believe is that we should understand this as a parable. Okay, But what he's saying is extremely important important and we're going to see a parallel passage that he's going to use the word mortify which means to literally put to death your members and so he's not saying you know kill your eyes and cut off your hands but he's talking about killing fleshly passions that are sinful and so this is really i think the appropriate application but christ is using the parable to communicate the following things about this kind of sin First of all, it starts in the heart. You don't act on it until you've thought about it. Until you've wanted it. Until you've justified it in your mind. Until you've entertained it and played with it for a while. We act on things that we have thought about for a while. And someone might say, well I just gave in to that temptation without thinking about it. And I might say, well if you were only looking at it in this moment in your life, maybe that's true. But you've lived a long time. All these times that you've gotten online and looked at things you shouldn't. All those text messages you've sent back and forth. All those conversations that you've had. All those times that you've kind of played with this thing. You didn't just give in in a moment. You set yourself up by laying a foundation that made it very easy in that moment to give in. That's the idea. So sin starts in the heart. The ultimate consequence of any sin is eternal destruction in the lake of fire. I want to remind you that in Romans 3 it says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He's emphasizing one sin. It's all it takes. One time. If you offend the law in one point, you're guilty of all of it. That's what he says. And so, the end result of sin is death. Third, It's better to be blind than to sin with our eyes and be under God's wrath. It's better to be crippled than to sin with our body and be under God's wrath. He's saying if you could compare these two things, what's worse? Eternal destruction and misery or temporal frustration? I'm not saying temporal frustration like it's not a big deal. He's saying which is worse? Which is the greater problem? That's what he's saying. Next, we must treat our sin as if it, we really believe that these things are true. I think a lot of us when it comes to sin, we know sin's bad, and we say we're under grace and so you know, let's enjoy the grace position and let's not worry about the sin thing. But but we know for a fact that sin has devastating consequences. You know, you may know someone whose marriage has blown apart and you see how it's how it's affected their children. You see how it's affected their families. You see how it's affected them personally. There's so many different ways that we could look at this issue. The, The simple fact is that sin really, really matters. Even though I may escape God's wrath because Christ has borne the wrath of God against my sin. That doesn't mean that I escape all the temporal consequences of terrible decisions. So it moves to another question. Well, how do you apply Christ's teaching appropriately? Let me give you a couple of thoughts that I hope will be helpful to you. And I want to be very practical and very specific. I really want to be practical and specific, especially for our young people on this issue. First is this, we need to flee from the wrath to come by fleeing to Christ. I think it's important when we look at the passage of Scripture, that like this one, that we recognize there is no sin that God cannot forgive. Well, there is actually one sin he can't forgive. That's the sin of unbelief. You reject the cross, you reject the finished work of Christ, you reject what's available to you in the gospel. That is the only sin that keeps a person out of heaven. And so we could talk about any number of sins that are very severe and they have really wounded people, and those sins can be forgiven at the cross. And so we need to flee to the cross And remind ourselves again of what Christ has done for us. I think of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He says that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And so it's important for us in a moment like this to say, Okay, this is serious. I need to run to Christ. I need to turn to him. I need to embrace the forgiveness that's available in him. Secondly, We need to hate our sin understanding its seriousness. Not we should hate the sin of everybody else. (laughs) We should hate our sin. It's really easy for us to look at other people and say, oh, they do this and they do this and they do this. And they could look at us and say, you do this, you do this, you do this. And somehow we're looking past each other and we're not thinking internally. I'm not responsible for the choices other people make. I'm responsible for the choices that I make. Now, as a pastor, I'm responsible to care for the souls of the people in this congregation. But I'm really not responsible for your choices. Not responsible for your decisions. You're not responsible for your children's decisions. They're not responsible for your decisions. You're not responsible for your spouse's decisions. They're not responsible for your decisions. We need to think about ourselves before we start thinking about other people. Third, we need to take decisive, aggressive, and appropriate action to address sin, pas- uh, t- sin, sinful passions. Now, I would say that if you have a problem with lust and you plucked out both your eyes, you'd still struggle with lust in your heart. That's the truth, okay? It's just the honest truth. If you cut off your hands and your feet, you'd still struggle with lust. Why? Because it's in the heart. It's something that is in us it's not just what's available to us the opportunities make it easier to give in to sinful passions but it's what's it's it is what it is what is inside of us and so he says in colossians three mortify i means put to death your members which are on the earth and he mentions them fornication uncleanness inordinate affection evil concupiscence I Think I explained what all those words meant at another time. He says, For these things the sake, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in which you also walked some time when you lived in them. But now you also put off these. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God. What's he saying? Well, Christian people all have pasts. All of us do. If you got saved when you were later, your past would be dreadful. Something that's very shameful. Something you you don't want anybody to know about. And I wouldn't suggest you sit down and tell them everything that you've done. That's a very heavy thing. And the fact is that God's grace is magnified when he rescues us from the terrible things that we have found ourselves in. And he's saying, if that's what you were, then don't walk like you were. Walk as you are. Which involves serious, decisive action. I'll put it like this. There are certain situations that we should not allow ourselves to be found in. There's just certain places we should never go. You say, well, I'm strong. Really? You're a fool. You're a fool. It's the truth. You say, well, that's kind of harsh. Well, that's what the Bible says. When we decide we're just going to throw caution to the wind. And ignore wisdom and prudence. And put ourselves in places that we shouldn't be. Guess what? We set ourselves up for sin. There are certain entertainments we should not participate in. It's just the truth. There are certain movies we should never watch. There are certain video games we should never play. There are certain entertainments we should never bring into our house. You say, well how do I know what I should and shouldn't do? Well ask the question. Does this pass the standard of what is right and holy and righteous and good? say, well, it's kind of on the line. Well, then why do you have to do it? I mean, there's better options out there. Aren't there some good games that you can play that there's no question about? It's not walking down the edge. It's not pushing you in a direction that is going to ultimately lead to detrimental consequence. There are certain accountabilities that we should all institute. Something very, very simple. We should never travel alone with somebody who's not our spouse. We should be careful about the associations that we have. I'm going to go even more specific a little bit later in this. But there are certain accountabilities that we all need. And by the way, if you have questions, I'll sit down and I'll talk to you about some ideas. That might be very specific to you in your situation because of what you've lived through. There are certain acceptable activities that we may need to refrain from because of our weakness in these areas. Let's say somebody's an alcoholic, and for 15 or 20 years of life, when they got off the job and they left the shop, they used to go by a liquor store every single day on their way home from work. They become gloriously saved, and they put away the alcohol, and they say, I'm not going to be that person anymore. I want to be sober. I want to be clear-minded. Do you think they should keep going by that liquor store every Friday and just say, well, there it is. I used to go down there. One of those days, you know what you're going to do? You're going to stop in. You're going to have a conversation with the guy in there. And you just give in a little bit at a time. And then guess what? You fall. And so, something as simple as saying, I'm not going to go that way anymore. Now, you know what? There's a lot of people that drive by a liquor store and their hands don't shake at all. And they don't think twice about going in there. It's not even on their radar. It's not a problem for them to drive by the liquor store. But for you, that might be totally different. We should not trust ourselves without real-life measures of accountability. Listen to some of these scriptures. They are very, very important for us to not miss. 1 Corinthians ten, twelve: Let him that thinketh he stand, take heed lest he fall. So if I believe I'm good and I'm strong and I don't need accountability, I have set myself up for step number two. That's what he's saying. You say, well, I don't want to live like I've like got to be careful about this. I don't want to live like, I'm, like I've got to be defensively minded the rest of my life. Well, when you go to heaven, you won't have to be that way. But until that day, you need to think prudently. You need to walk in wisdom. We must do this. Romans 13, 14 says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the luster of I guess another way to put it is we can do things that literally lay the foundation for sinful choices or we could choose to walk in a way that doesn't do that that's what he means by making provision you know one of the ways that you know a country thinking about go to, going to war is that they start building up their arsenals okay if you work in the intelligence community and one of our adversaries is starting to build up their resources you notice this i say you we as a nation notice these things why well because you don't do this without a reason without a cause and the simple fact is that a lot of christians don't think prudently about this issue we are we're very lackadaisical. we're very lazy we're very presumptuous We should not make provision for our flesh. 2 Corinthians 7.11 He says that you sorrowed after a godly sort. He says what carefulness it wrought in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What vehement desire. What zeal. What revenge. And all these things you are approving of yourself to be clear in this matter. What he's basically saying is. When someone has gone down a path of sin. The way they're thinking It's completely twisted. It's wrong. And when God allows them to experience consequence of sin. And he begins to work repentance in their heart. And their thinking changes about that issue. All of the sudden where they were presumptuous. They're afraid. And where they were careless. They're very cautious. And where they made no. uh, We could say boundaries for themselves. They're embracing boundaries for themselves. Where they were hiding from accountability and when they're being dishonest, they're honest, they're open. They take real accountability for their actions. They don't make excuses. That's what he means. And so this proverb is all about helping us to understand we've got to take sin seriously. Wisdom should sober us to our vulnerabilities. And so I'm going to ask these questions because I, I think we should all ask ourselves these questions. Here they are. First question. Do we have internet access without any real accountability? You say, well, is it sinful to have internet access without accountability? No, it's not. There's no verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt not have the internet without accountability. There isn't. But there is a verse that says, do not make provision for your flesh. And so you give give your kid a cell phone, and he can go on YouTube and go anywhere they want. Guess what? They're going to go a lot of places they shouldn't go. You say, how do you know that? Because I know human nature. (laughs) I know human nature. It's like putting a gun in a kid's hand. Why would you do that? Without any, any kind of accountability, without any kind of protections, why in the world would any parent do that? You know how many parents do that, though? Lots of them. Don't even think twice about it. We need to ask this question to ourselves. Number two. Do we indulge in entertainments that stir up sexual passions? You say, well, that movie, it's got a couple scenes that probably aren't the best, but overall, it's a great movie. So, being totally honest and transparent, how are you responding when you're watching the movie? I'm asking you to ask yourself that question. I'm not here to tell you. I'm here to ask you. Ask yourself the question. Let the Spirit of God shine the light into your soul and just be honest with Him about it. Do we regularly text with people who are not our spouse, especially without our spouse's knowledge? So You say, "Well, it's a coworker. I can text with a coworker. Why does it matter?" Okay, you know a lot of people have affairs with coworkers. Why is that? Well, because boundaries get broken down, and all of a sudden those relationships become a little more personal and a little bit more intimate and a little less professional. And pretty soon, guess what? you have a serious problem on your hands have we gradually allowed our work relationships to become too personal do we allow ourselves to be alone with someone who's not our spouse you say well does the bible tell me that it's sinful for me to be alone with a person who's not my spouse no it doesn't but i can tell you this that's one of those steps that we take that leads down a road that ends up in the wrong places if you don't put yourself in these situations guess what you won't have a problem It's a very simple thing. A lot of people mock Mike Pence. (laughs) And the truth is what Mike Pence is doing has saved his marriage probably. It's kept him from a lot of accusations. It's kept him from hurting his marriage. Are we careless in our social media profiles, posts, and interactions? Maybe I could add, do we have secret accounts that nobody knows about? And we use those accounts so that we can go places that nobody knows about. Well, guess what? You are setting yourself up for drastic, dangerous things. Are we involving ourselves in advising and counseling situations without our spouse's involvement? This is a very dangerous thing. A lot of pastors find themselves in places they shouldn't go. Because the the truth is that when you pour your heart into somebody and they pour their heart out to you, there's a bond, there's a connection that you begin to establish with that person. And something that could be very innocent in the beginning can become very detrimental as things go down. Do we harbor secrets from our spouse that if exposed would be very embarrassing and cause them to distrust us? Are we actively taking measures to limit accountability? What I mean by that is are we being dishonest? You know, your your husband or your wife says, Hey, you know, I really think we should establish this boundary in our home. You say, Ah, I think that's a little legalistic. We don't need to do that. Well, the fact that they're bringing that up, might, might, there might be a reason behind it. <laughs> maybe there's something that's kind of bothering them, something they've noticed. They don't really want to come out and accuse or say this is wrong, but I think we need to pull this in a little bit. I say, dads, we need to maybe take stock ourselves. It's not our wife's job to be the one who polices the family. It's our job. We're the heads of our homes. We're the ones that are responsible to God for what goes on in our households. Some of these things mentioned are not necessarily sinful. And so I don't say things like, it's wrong for you to have the internet in your home, or it's wrong for you to not have internet accountability on in your phone, or it's wrong for you to have a television, or it's wrong for you to have Netflix. What I'm saying is, you need to ask the question, honestly before God, what am I doing here? What am I setting myself up for? How am I beginning to draw my heart in a direction That, in fact, is very, very dangerous. Some of the things mentioned are unquestionably sinful. And we go down that road, we are setting ourselves up for very, very serious matters. The final thing I'm going to mention is this. God did not create divorce. He designed marriage to be a lifelong bond. And the way that he states it uh, is is very interesting, okay? I'm going to go ahead and read what he says here in chapter 5, verses. Verse 23, verse 31, I'm sorry. It hath been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. There's that little statement, you've heard it said. You say, well, why have you heard this said? But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall commit adultery, or whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Now, what is the point of Jesus making this statement? Obviously, he is addressing a very specific question that the religious leaders are asking. But he's really, more than anything else, He's saying, "I'm going to uphold marriage the way that God intended it." And he addresses the question of where did divorce actually come from? Was this God's idea? And I want to delve into this just a little bit, okay? Where did divorce come from? The answer is it came from man, not God. Matthew nineteen seven says, They said unto him, Why did Moses command to give a writing of divorcement to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you. It means he allowed you, he allowed you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Do you see the difference between those two things? They say, why did Moses command? Jesus says, he didn't command. He allowed because y'all are so hard-hearted. That's basically what he's saying. And, and really, when a marriage breaks down and it becomes to the place where it cannot be reconciled, and, and this happens, okay? I mean, there are times that you, 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 you have a friend, you have somebody that you love, and you try to work things out between them and their spouse, and you, you come to this point where you realize there is no giving, okay? It could be on both sides, it could be entirely on one side, but there's no way to bring the reconciliation. So why does the marriage collapse? Well, it's because of hardness of heart. Because either one or both of those people say, I'm not going to give an inch here. I'm going to stand my ground. I'm going to fight. He says Moses allowed it. In other words, he said, I don't know what to do with these people. They're so hard-hearted. They're so callous. These men are, are, are so nasty to their wives. Go ahead. Go ahead. But what's very interesting about this is that the way that it's worded in the text is actually God not creating divorce, but God limiting the damage that happens when divorce takes place. That's ultimately what he's doing. We see this in Deuteronomy 24. He says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her. And by the way, that is probably talking about the situation that Joseph believed he was encountering with Mary, that she had been unfaithful to him, And he has discovered this because she's pregnant. He didn't want to put her away, make a terrible example of her. He wanted to do this quietly. But he said, I cannot marry this woman because she's been unfaithful. That is probably the situation that he's talking about here. He's found some uncleanness in her. Let him write her a bill of divorcement, give into her hand, send her out of his house. Later on it says this, if she remarries and her former husband, which sent her away, her, her her husband, her second husband either dies or he puts her away. He says, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to his wife after she is defiled. Now, when, when the text in Matthew talks about a, a second marriage being adultery, I think that's what he's talking about. Not that a person continues to live in adultery the rest of their life. It's that there was a, there was a, a, a broken covenant, okay, And so, that's the way God views it. He states it pretty clearly, okay? He does talk about the situation of fornication. But in all other situations, he makes it very clear. This is uh, what he's talking about. So, after that she is defiled, for that is abomination before the Lord. Thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for inheritance. Basically, this is what he's saying. He's trying to limit people just putting away their wives for some flippant reason, and saying, you know, somebody else ended up marrying her. He puts her away. I kind of like her back. I'll, I'll go ahead and take this wife back. Or her second spouse, he dies. I'd like to take her back. He says, no. What's he doing? He's trying to limit the decision that people are making out of the hardest of their heart to put away their spouses. That's what he's trying to do. And so in the Hebrew text, the idea is that if this happens, here are the controls that have to be enforced. If a woman has been found unfaithful, leading up to their marriage, her husband could legally put her away. However, if she remarried and was put away a second time, she could not be legally remarried to her husband. Deuteronomy 22 talks about the danger of false accusations. And someone says, well, I married this woman, she's been unfaithful to me, and he brings a charge that's not true. In Deuteronomy 22, it says that if the husband falsely accuses his wife And this could be proven to be a false accusation. I'm going to get into the weeds as to why. Read the text and you'll be able to figure it out. There were stiff penalties for the accusation. One of the penalties was he would be beaten publicly. (laughs) So he accused his wife of being unfaithful. It was proven he had lied. Guess what? He was beaten in in the public forum. All right? Number two, he would have to pay... The equivalent of twice a typical dowry. Now, in those days, when a person was getting married, the custom was that a man would give a dowry to the family. And you say, well, he was like buying his wife. No, that's not what he's doing. He's showing honor to the family. And there was a certain expectation. If you want to get married, then you need to be able to provide this amount of money to the girl's family to say, thank you for all the work that you did in the protection of of my future spouse. This is an honor to them. And that was what they were going to have to do. So he's already paid this dowry so that he could marry this lady. He falsely accuses her and it's proven that he's, he's lying. He has to pay double the dowry. He's got to do it three times. <laughs> and the third thing is he could not put away his wife. And some of you go, well, you mean that she was stuck with this nasty guy? Well, what he, what's ultimately being stated is he has a moral obligation to take care of this woman the rest of his life feed her clothe her make sure that she's taken care of properly what's the point the point is this god allowed divorce to take place but that wasn't his plan that's not what he wants okay what does god want god wants people to marry wisely to have strong godly homes and then to live faithful to their spouse till death separates that's what he wants okay but that's not the way it always happens In a fallen world, messy things happen. And so God allowed people to do this. Secondly, he established laws to protect the vulnerable in divorce situations. He was trying to protect someone who had been falsely accused. You see that. He's protecting someone who has been put out. Okay? So that she wouldn't be put out quickly. That there would be real life consequence for the things that were going on. While God did not stop the practice... God limited the practice. And many times God does this in his work. Thirdly, he established laws to limit the extent of the evils that flow from divorce. He reminds us that he cares about those who have been dealt with unjustly. And and the simple fact is that every situation is different. Okay? There are situations where it's 50-50. Both people are contributing equally to the problem. Okay? There's times when you have a spouse who has just truthfully been treated unjustly and i mean the blame is almost entirely on one side there's situations like there's absolutely no question of that and so what does god do he protects and he cares for the vulnerable for those who have been treated unjustly i also want to notice that may help you to see this too he does not command that a person gets divorced in this situation he does not encourage them to get divorced in this situation He establishes the law for the protection of the one who has been treated unjustly and establishes the law to discourage frivolous charges and the rash dissolutions of marriage. What's he doing? He's reaffirming the purpose for marriage and its permanence. So if you want to summarize what Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying this. Marriage is supposed to be between one man, one woman, till death separates them. That's God's plan. Anything that flows beyond that is is not his design. It's inconsistent with his purpose. Does God hate people? Does he want to destroy their lives when they have messed up and when they've made terrible decisions or when they've been treated unjustly? The answer is, of course not. His grace is available. He forgives those who've sinned. He protects those who are vulnerable. But he upholds his plan because his plan is good. His desire is that people would build a household That has eternal value that's his point so the question is how do we apply what we've heard tonight i think that's a question that we need to walk away with and so let me give you some thoughts in closing first of all in the same way that christ upheld a high view of marriage so should we these are his words not my words someone might say well well, pastor why didn't you uh give some exceptions why didn't jesus give exceptions I mean, it's his word, not mine. I'd love to put exceptions there, but the scriptures didn't do that. In the same way that Christ upheld a high view of marriage, so should we. Secondly, we need to encourage unmarried people. And once people are in a mess, it's hard to untangle it. And we want to be as kind to people who have messy situations. We want to work with them. We want to give them hope to the extent that we can. But the bottom line is that the way that you don't get in entangling situations is you start right at the beginning. And we start right with our kids. We start right with our teenagers. We teach them what the Word of God says about this, and we help prepare them for marriage. We need to help our children develop the qualities that will make them desirable and godly spouses. You know, how many people say, oh, I want to marry a godly spouse? And you're looking at them, and you're like, but they wouldn't want to marry you. <laughs> It's just the honest truth. Okay. I want to marry someone who's strong and wise and godly. And you're like, and you would wreck that person's life. Perhaps you should take personal stock before you project what you would like. Okay. And I hate to say this, but we as parents are the ones who often fall short here. The limitations our kids, and our children are responsible for their decisions. hundred percent. Okay. But we can make it harder for them by, by not being wise parents. We need to encourage them to be a man or woman of wisdom, skill, and integrity. We need to teach them how to deal with sinful passions biblically. We, we need to have conversations with our teenagers. I would even say our pre-teenagers. You say, well, that's uncomfortable. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's extremely uncomfortable. Especially if you didn't grow up in a household where... Your dad talked to you guys or your mom talked to you ladies. You found out a lot of these things from people you went to school with. You need to talk to your children about these issues. How to deal with sexual temptation biblically. We should not allow ourselves to establish patterns that will strengthen sinful passions and leave us vulnerable to temptation. Now, I know you might totally disagree with me, but this is kind of something I actually think is true that people learn how to deal with passion when they're little kids. You say, well, they don't understand sexual passion when they're four years old. No, they don't. But they do learn how to say, okay, I don't feel like doing this. I don't want to do this. This would be easier, but this is my duty. I'm going to do the right thing. I mean, it's a simple thing. But as your children are developing, you're teaching them how to deal with laziness, and passions and the, the, the appetites that they have. You're teaching them those things when they're very little. And then once they go into adolescence and they hit puberty, all of a sudden now they're starting to experience certain passions that they didn't experience as younger people when they were little kids. But they are getting the tools to deal with those things. You do not get married to conquer lust. There are a lot of people that think if you have lustful passions, we'll just get married and we'll go away. No, if you don't learn to deal with lust as an unmarried person, you're the kind of person that cheats on your spouse. You say, well, well now I have, you know, I have a spouse and I can enjoy this relationship with them. And, and here's a simple fact. It is not your spouse's job to satisfy all your sexual passions. It's not. You're putting on them a burden that God did not give them. And if we just think about Basic human biology, we will realize that there are limitations, age limitations, health limitations. We could go even further than that. But God wants us to learn how to control ourselves. And that's really important. Many, many times, someone who's struggling with some sexual temptation will say something like, Well, if my wife would just do this, I wouldn't have that problem. And I say, You're lying. That's not true at all. It's not true at all. So do you get a pass when your wife turns 65? Is that, is that, do you get a pass when, when you're old? Do you get a pass if your, your spouse has health issues? Do you get a pass if your spouse gains weight? Do you, do you get a pass in these areas? of course not. You have to learn how to control your passions. We need to listen to the input of wiser, older people as we approach marriage. Now, it's not my job to pick somebody's spouse. And it's not your job, parent, to pick your children's spouse. But you know your kids better than they know themselves. It's just the truth. And if you have experience, there are certain things you notice like, that does not appear to be a great fit. I have a caution here or there. That is a very appropriate and a very logical thing for us to do when we're looking at younger people who are preparing for marriage. We're helping them to realize, you know what, you want to marry this person, here's an area where you're going to have to pull it together. Very important. Don't marry ill-advisedly. Carefully consider the weight of your decision Enter marriage with the conviction that God created marriage to be till death do us part. You say, well, well, pastor, my marriage collapsed at such and such a time. Or I, I, I went about it all the wrong ways at this period in my life. Can I really do those things? Of course you can do those things. Absolutely you can do those things. In fact, if anything else, you might be in an even better position to be able to talk about these things and say, hey, I hate to say this, but before I was a Christian... This is, this, these are the decisions I made. This is where I was in life. And I'll tell you that it's hard, it's painful, and I don't want you to go down that road. And you lovingly steer them in the right direction. We've got to encourage people who are having challenges in their marriage to seek godly counsel before their marriage is at a serious impasse. A lot of times people will go to counseling when they're really about to get divorced. And they don't want to hear anything else from anybody. But one spouse says, you go to counseling or I'm done. And they're like, "All right, whatever. Well, I am... How how would you like to be the person that's got to counsel that? I mean, like, really? Okay. Well, you're counselor number four I've talked to. It's like, yeah. It's not that I don't love you. It's not that I don't want to help you. It's that your heart has been so firmly set for so long. How can this impasse be bridged but the truth is that that bridge could have that impasse could have been dealt with some time before and it was a challenge it was a struggle but it could have been worked through and so we need to encourage people when they encounter struggles to point them to people that can help them we need to be advocates for those who are abused and mistreated by protecting them and holding abusive people accountable I do think that this is a part of the discussion. There are some people that are in marriages that are, frankly, dangerous for them. And the church needs to be protective of those people. You say, nah, the church doesn't have this problem. Yeah, they do. Unfortunately, truthfully, they do. And sometimes we have to stay in the gap to protect an individual who is vulnerable. <coughs> we need to have compassion on those whose marriages have co- collapsed without compromising our view of marriage. I hope that the things that are said today will not be taken as, oh, Well, I messed up here, so you have this problem with me. No. The truth is that we've got to pull what the Bible says. We've got to love and have compassion on people where they are. And I'm thankful when people get saved out of the messiest of situations. I wish they hadn't gone through the messiest of situations, but I'm thankful that they've been saved and that they can move forward as a family, even though there's a lot of mess on this side and this side. Here they are today. Walk with God. Raise your kids. Live for Him. Learn the lessons that you have learned and teach them. That's what we want to do. And the church is going to have many, many people in such a situation. If your marriage has collapsed and you've been divorced, draw close to God, examine your heart. Where you've sinned, confess it to him and forsake it and know that God has forgiven you. Where you have failed, learn from those failures and allow God to use you to help those who need to be helped and can be helped. Allow God's grace to warm your heart and uplift you where you've been beaten down. I hope that somebody doesn't say, well, there's no way forward because here's what I did. No, there's a way forward. Confess, forsake, embrace the forgiveness that's available, learn from it, and then move forward by God's grace. (laughs) Live for Him. Do the best that you can with the situation that you're in without further complicating your life. One of the things that's really sad is that when people go through a very painful season of life, sometimes what they'll do is they'll get impatient and they'll bring more junk into their life. They make it worse. They make it more complicated. They make it more painful. And we need to learn to be patient and heal and let God work in our lives. We need to pray for one another when it comes to this issue of marriage. Upholding God's standard and trying to strengthen those who aren't married yet. Let's pray. Our Father thank you for the word of God. And the things that we've looked at this evening. I know this passage is a tough one. Uh, to deal with. It's easy to overlook and not address. But we need to hear it. I pray especially for our young people who are not yet married. That you will help us as parents and as mentors. To point them to Christ. Help them grow and mature as Christians. I pray for those whose lives have experienced the tremendous heartaches of adultery, divorce, pain and suffering in their marriages. I pray that you would provide healing and that these are people that would turn to you and experience your grace and strength. And I pray that you would help us have strong families. Our our, our society desperately needs it. Our church desperately needs it. Father, we want to be faithful men and women. We ask all this in Christ's name, amen.